is Genesis 49, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1, and then we get to verse 16. We're going to read together, okay? Listen very carefully. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Verse 16 together. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path, that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backwards. Notice verse 18. Let's read together. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. In verse 1, Jacob is telling his sons, I'm going to tell you some things that are prophetic in nature about your lives. He says, come together. Now, this is Jacob's prophecy. He's talking to his son. As a father, he's observed and studied his sons. He knows their strengths, and he knows their weaknesses. You get over to Deuteronomy, you're going to read something similar, but it comes from Moses. They're two different, they're two different, two different spe- speeches there. In this one, Jacob is speaking to his sons. The other one, Moses is talking to the tribes. They're different. That's why when you can do a comparison, you're going to say, well, how come they're not matching up? Because Moses is talking to the tribes right before they're going into uh, the promised land. Jacob is talking to his sons as they're settling down in Egypt. And of course, you know they're going to be in Egypt for 400 plus years. Jacob had insight. Remember, he's a patriarch, but he's also a prophet of God. He's a patriarch giving us insight about some tendencies about his son. But nestled in that, we see, and again, we're looking at the fifth son now of of Jacob. Nestled in that are some some truths and some practical Christian living uh, insights that we need to garner that will help us tonight. And I pray that the Lord will speak to our hearts about some of these things here tonight. And uh, it was kind of vacillating what what to use for the title and I want to draw your attention to the description he gives to Dan in verse 17, because really that's the description about him. In verse 16, he speaks about Dan as a leader. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're going to spend a little time tonight talking about leadership. But verse 17, I thought this was kind of interesting. He just, you know, he had these, he had these, these, um, he had these very colorful descriptions about his sons. And he describes Dan as a serpent by the way. That's an interesting description. In fact, he went further, described him as an adder, which is a venomous serpent, in the path. We want to look tonight as Dan, who's a serpent, by the way, you might say dangerous Dan. But tonight I want us to look at that because he didn't end that way. We get to verse 18. In spite of some things he saw in Dan, his tendencies, he said, he got his eyes on the Lord. He says, I've waited. For thy salvation, O Lord. We'll see some things about that tonight. Father, we pray this evening that you meet our needs tonight spiritually. Sometimes we think about our needs, and Lord, we kind of just feel like maybe, God, you're not thinking about us. Or maybe the preacher doesn't know what's going down in my heart. But I pray tonight that I'd have the mind of Christ. I pray tonight to have the supreme wisdom of God and prudence from above. I acknowledge tonight and bring your congregation before you because you're the chief shepherd of uh, you're the chief shepherd and and the bishop of our souls. You're the great shepherd of the sheep who through the blood of the everlasting covenant you said you'd make us perfect and complete to do all the will of God. And Father's the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. You know better than I do what our what the congregation needs. But tonight I pray that you help through this passage to feed our souls. I pray that we taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray for those, all of us as we grow in the faith that tonight we get off the milk of the word and get into some of the meat of the word. 
that we might discern between good and evil, that we might have discernment about our lives, that, Lord, there's some facing some critical decisions they've got to make, and I pray that maybe something that we see from the Word of God will help them in that decision-making. Some are at some crossroads tonight and trying to decide which road they're supposed to be on. Some, Lord, are kind of straddling the fence, and they've been on there for a little bit tonight, and they, 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 tonight might be the night they need to decide which side of the fence they're supposed to be on. Whatever it may be tonight, we pray that foremost of all this, that, Lord, you'll be worshipped, you'll be honored. We, but we pray tonight that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that, uh, that the Lordship of Christ would be very evident in our life and that Christ would be preeminent. And tonight we pray you do a spiritual work in our midst that we need to have done in us so that as we enter into this coming week with a Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that everyone here would have a victorious Christian life, that everyone would see breakthroughs in their Christian life. We pray that for as a church we'd see an upturn, that we'd come out of this uh, low we've been in for the month of February and see an uptick and upturn. Lord, and, and souls being saved and people added to the church and baptisms occurring and victories in the Christian life. And God, I pray you'd burn something in our soul. We pray for some wood for the fire this evening. We pray that tonight that you just would fill us up. We pray that we'd be empty of self and ready to receive the engrafted word which is able to save souls. And then tonight we have many, Lord, in our congregation or extended family members who've got illnesses and sicknesses and a number of things going on. And we pray that you touch every, every single one of these bodies that are, that are ailing, that, uh, Lord, with, with wellness and healing recovery tonight. And uh, we pray through all these things that our Savior would get the glory and praise. Meet with us now. Love your people through your word. Shepherd them through your word. Bring us closer to you. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Richard M. Nixon was the 37th president of the United States. Many of you remember that. You're old enough to remember Richard Nixon. During his two terms, he championed several accomplishments that gave him a feared respect among global leaders. We have the, Nixon, we have the Richard M. Nixon Presidential Library down there in Southern California. Sadly, Mr. Nixon resigned from the office of president due to the Watergate scandal. The scandal overshadowed the many things he did as a president. You mentioned Mr. Nixon's name, and the Watergate scandal is kind of foremost what really stands out in many people's minds. That's what they remember most about Mr. Nixon. In many ways, sadly, Mr. Nixon is remembered as a leader who failed. Notice tonight we're looking at Dan, who's pictured to us in verse 16 as a leader. He's Jacob's fifth son. He's the son of of, 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 Bil, of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, as we find in Genesis 35, 25. His very name means judge. You might want to write that there. His very name means judge. And prophetically, when, Dan, when, when, when Jacob gave this name to his son, he foresaw his son that one day from, the, from his lineage would be a series of leaders. He said, Dan shall judge his people. That's what his name means, judge. Dan, if you would, is a prominent, from Dan, we're gonna, we, we know from the Bible that one of the prominent judges in the book of Judges came out of the loins of Dan. His name was Samson. We're going to see a few things about Samson tonight. Dan is the name of the northernmost, uh, northernmost city of the nation of Israel. If you look on a map later on, you look way, way up north. Dan was at the northernmost tip. In fact, you'd have to go through Dan, and then from Dan you'd get into the area of Syria. Dan represents a city. Dan represents the tribe where Samson came out of. Dan's name is mentioned 70, 71 times in the scriptures. 71 times in the Old Testament we find Dan's name re referenced here. Dan speaks to you and me about leadership 
and influence. I want you to see some things tonight about Dan. We're doing a Bible study, but we're doing some preaching tonight. Amen. We're going to spend some time looking at God's word. Number one this evening, I want you to notice the positional significance. Positional significance. Verse 16 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Circle the word tribes. Circle the word tribes. Now, the tribes of Israel have not started unfolding. We only find the 12 sons mentioned here. We find their beginnings. Jacob is, is an older man. He's on his deathbed, leaning upon his staff as a pilgrim, as a patriarch. He's telling his son some things. The word tribes is an interesting word. It can be translated tribes. It is also translated, if you look through your Bible study, it, you also find the same word used to describing rods, staves, and scepters. Scepter, as we saw last week, a scepter is symbolic of rulership. A scepter is symbolic of a king's leadership. The idea there is this. He described his son Dan as a scepter, as a rod, as a staff. Now, when we look at that, as I said earlier, two things jump out as we think about Dan. Significant about Dan is Samson, who is one of the great judges of Israel. In fact, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, four chapters are given to us about Samson. And then we read later on the city of Dan because very prominent somewhere there in 1 Kings, I think, 12, or I think it's 1 Kings 12, when Jeroboam uh, established cat, golden calf worship. And we'll say something about that later. But I want you to notice some things starting off verse 16 because Jacob wanted to see some things about positional significance. Positional significance means where you are at or what you have as a title or where you stand is positionally significant. Now, leadership, I want you to take some notes tonight, this evening. Leadership is about positional significance. Leadership is about your influence on others. Leadership is this. Leadership is your ability to get people to buy into your idea. It's your ability to get people to follow you. It's your ability to get people to contribute to your cause. It's your ability to do what you say. Hey, you know, one of the most basic areas of leadership, wait till Christmas time, you go by the post office, and you find the Salvation Army, they're ringing their bell, hoping you'll put some money in. That's leadership. They're appealing to you to put something to contribute to their cause, okay? And they're trying to get you to do that. Uh, you watch our little kids in, the, in, the, in, 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 our, in our children's study school or elementary school. You can immediately pick out who the leader is, right? The leader is the one who can get all the rest of the tribe to do what he's doing. Whether it's good or bad, he gets them to do what they're doing. Uh, the leader is the one who gets them to uh, follow what he's doing and follow them. You all know about the Pied Piper and how he got people to follow him. He played, uh, got the pipe and he got those rats to follow him and all those kind of things like that. Leadership, uh, leaders are noted for their persuasive power. The judges of Israel presided over the affairs of the nation. Listen to this. They dealt with civil, criminal, and spiritual matters. The judges were the, were the representation of God. God was not ready for them to become a, 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 to have a, a nation led by a monarchy. God had them established as a theocracy, as a people led by God. And they did pretty good as a theocracy when God led them through prophets like, <coughs> like Moses and Joshua. But when Joshua passed the scene... And when the elders that outlived Joshua out passed the scene, God had to raise up, raise up judges. And mainly because we read one of the things about the book of Judges is that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And because of that, every man was led by his own persuasion. So they had to have some leadership. They had to have some guidance there. So notice some things here. I want you to notice this, this here tonight. <coughs> 
Leaders must be respected in order for people to voluntarily follow them. I want you to take your Bibles tonight and go with me to Proverbs 12, 24. <coughs> Leaders must be respected in order for people to follow them. Now, they must be men who are honest and of good report. Now, tonight... You, everybody here tonight has some kind of leadership capacity, and I'm going to zone in on two kinds of leaders tonight in our first point. And tonight, we're either good leaders or we're bad leaders, okay? We're either performing or not performing. We're either influencing right or influencing wrong. I want you to notice with me Proverbs 12, 24. And briefly tonight, I want to give you some insight about leadership here. Proverbs 12, 24. Are you there? Say amen. amen. Okay, listen very carefully. I'm going to read it. I want you to listen very carefully. And it's the first half of Proverbs 12, 24 I want you to listen to. The Bible says, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Now circle the word rule. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Rule is speaking about leadership. Now that's identifying us in Proverbs 12, 24, uh, the idealism of leadership. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. He's talking about hard work, of course, but he's also giving us some insights about leadership. Now I want to write some things down tonight about leadership, okay? When we read this verse, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, encompassed in that one thought are all the traits that should be found in right leadership. Okay, let me give you an example, for instance. Number one, leaders must have integrity. Leaders must have integrity. That's why the very first thing that's said in 1 Timothy 3.1, a bishop then must be blameless. blameless, okay? We read here over in, in, in Acts chapter 6, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, look out among you seven men of honest report, okay? Leaders must have integrity. Leaders must be above reproach. Leaders must have integrity, okay? Secondly, notice the hand of the diligence shall be removed. Secondly, leaders must be industrious. Leaders must be hardworking, okay? If you're just hanging out and you got just an iPad, they're uh, just moving away and you're not involved, you don't get your hand into the work. And listen, you got to put your hand to the plow. The Bible says about Nehemiah and the people that they all put their hand to the work. They were working there. Notice the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Those who are involved with the work and get their hands dirty. They shall be people in positions of leadership. Leaders must be industrious. You're not a good leader if you're not a hard worker. You go talk to my friend, Dr. Ed Lorena. He'll say this all the time to his church. He was saying from day one when he started the church, you've got to work hard. I want to tell you tonight, you're not going to be much of a leader if you're not working hard. There's two kinds of people, those who, do, those who work hard and those who are hardly working, amen? And you notice here, that's what he's talking about here. Those who work hard, those who are hardly working. Leaders must have integrity. Leaders must be industrious. Notice something else there. The hand of the diligent shall be a rule. Leaders must have initiative. Now, ladies, you single ladies praying about a husband, you pray about a man that's got initiative. He's a take-charge person, okay? You men who want a, want a godly wife, you're going to find a godly wife in this, in this church, you better have initiative. You need to be a take-charge person. You need to see something. You know, I, I look around the church, and I do things. That I'm giving you some insight of what I do. Every now and then, I'll, I'll walk around, and if I see a garbage can filled, and I'm kind of walking around, I'm looking around to see what's going on, I get antsy about that, because this is God's property. I don't like seeing garbage cans filled. I don't like the see them overflowing. I don't like to see paper on the floor. I want to get that picked up. I'm looking to see which of our men has initiative. I'm trying to see who has initiative. Now, either you have initiative or you're reactive. You're going to be reactive because you saw somebody else do it. You need to have initiative. Listen, guys, you're a teacher. You go in your classroom and your chairs are not set up. You need to have initiative. You need to be there early enough to set the chairs up. Don't stand there complaining, well, I wonder who made the mess here and didn't get it done. Don't worry about that. Get your room set up. Have initiative because you got people about to walk in 
again within 10 minutes of the class starting time, have initiative. Hey, listen, things are not set up, have initiative. I preach what Brother Vaughn does. Brother Vaughn gets here early Sunday morning. He walks and checks out the chairs several times. He does that. He did that last night. He checks out the chairs. He checks out our sound system. He preheats the room. He gets all these things. He has initiative. Brother Daniel does the same thing. They'll come in and they'll check things out. They'll look those things over. Hey, you got to have initiative. Hey, we're going to have work days. We have work days. We got to have things set out. We put our supplies out. We put our tools out. We got to have initiative. Hey, man, you're going to lead your family. You got to have initiative. You have bills to pay. Pay them on a certain day. Don't wait till the last day to pay your bills. Pay your bills early. Get them done. Be on time. Be, you know, get your debt down. Don't be an irresponsible Christian. Don't have a bad credit report. Have a good credit report. I mean, ladies, you ought to be looking at these kind of things here. Listen, when the church decided to vote on me as, as the pastor, one of the things the deacons did, they looked up and did a credit report. That's initiative. They want to make sure they're not hiring a pastor that's got a bad credit history. I'm saying to you tonight, you've got to have initiative about what you're doing. You play in the orchestra. Have initiative. Get your instruments ready. Make sure they're tuned up. Don't, don't, go, don't come late and then go get your, get your, uh, your instruments. Have your instruments ready. Choir members, have your music ready. You say, well, somebody didn't prepare it. You be the somebody to prepare it. I mean, I'm saying tonight, the thing that distinguishes a church and a leader is that we have people that have initiative about what they do. Leaders must have initiative. Notice something else here. Leaders must have insight. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule. You've got to have insight. Now, you have to grow in insight. Wisdom, wisdom doesn't grow on you. Wisdom comes by experience, the school of hard knocks. Wisdom comes by being baptized by fire, then the Holy Ghost. Amen? You have to have insight. You have to be able to see something, almost prophetic in nature. You need to have wisdom about things. You need to realize sometimes it's, it's smarter to be quiet and observe than to give your two cents. Everybody wants to give their two cents. I think what I, what I suggest tonight is that we just have, we just be, be, be quiet and do our own work and work with our own hands, as the Bible says. Amen? We need to have insight there. This includes vision. This includes foresight. This includes prudence. Now, I'm going to give you some of that next Sunday night. And we're going to, we're going to talk about Easter. Now, why are we going to make Easter a big thing? Number one, it's a good thing to see a church rally around a common cause and work hard for it. It's a good cause, but you say, why do you, want to, why do you want us to work hard? Because there's a world that needs Jesus Christ as Savior. We've got a Bay Area that's going farther away from Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what. We come to church. We're here most of Sunday for those of you here tonight. And we are here on Wednesday night, praise God for that. And we're talking about the, the essence of a church. And I'm going to be spending a lot of time this year talking about church and the mechanics of church and the ministry of church. But did you know the average person that comes to our church, they're, they're in paganism six days a week. They're in paganism six days. I mean, just, you know, those of you who work in your work site, go read your employee handbook one of these days. Look how much of it is unbiblical. And look at the common employee there that's standing around. They're just there to collect a paycheck. They're not there to contribute to something that's worthy. And then if they are, there's all this materialism that's, uh, that's motivating them. They have to put money as an incentive. Hey, listen, as a Christian, don't let money be your incentive while you work. Now, thank God, thank God that you get rewarded for that. But money should not be your incentive. The incentive for working is the hand of the diligent shall bear root. You ought to know that whatsoever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me thanks to God and the Father by him. We need to stay focused on the fact that we enjoy what we do and we do what we have to because we love God and we're serving God. Did you realize that every person here, if you hold a secular job, you're a missionary on that job? Did you realize every student here on that school place you're at, you're not just here to get an education. You're there to bring Jesus Christ to that school. Hey, we are missionaries in this pagan society. This is no longer a Christian society. This is a pagan society we're in. Just look around you. 
Leaders must have initiative. Leaders must have insight. Hey, leaders must initiate. Leaders must initiate. Look what he says there. The slothful shall be under tribute. If you're lazy, you're, you're going to be at the bottom of the totem pole, amen? You're going to be under tribute. Slothful people do not initiate. Leaders must inspire. Now, let me talk about some leaders here tonight. I want, I want you to just bear with me tonight. Husbands must be a, sensi- a husband must be a sensitive, sacrificial, selfless, serving leader. How many, how many men tonight would confess tonight? I, we have, we're a work in progress. We're always working on that. Amen? We're a work in progress. Some of you, some of you husbands are self-right. You didn't raise your hand. Gerald, where's your hand? Amen? Come on now. Amen. There you go. Okay. Listen again tonight. Husbands must be sensitive, sacrificial, selfless, serving leaders. That's four parts of marriage counseling right there. Husbands are leaders. You say, you don't know my personality. No, you stepped into the role. Okay? There's the role. You must understand your role. And as you understand your role, there's a rule that you must follow. And that rule you must follow is you are set there to lead. You're to lead. Look again. The hand of the diligent shall be Did you know you have to work at it to be a husband? Did you not have to work it to be a good husband? I mean, you just, you just don't sit on the couch with the clicker going away and think that makes you husband. That does not make you husband. That just means you're just another, another, another one of these guys that's just clicking around. Amen? Notice another one. We see husbands as leaders. I want to see fathers as leaders. Now, fathers, I want you to listen to me. Prospective fathers, listen to me tonight. Because we're all working on this. Fathers must be role models. Now, I, I'm a little bit older right now. The thought of that... I think, I think about all the things I didn't do right. That's why Justin's the way he is, amen, you know? All the things I didn't do right. And you say this, you say this well, what'd you, what would you do over? It was too late to do it over. Time's gone. That's 33 years ago. Now, you listen, some of you are young, young parents. You better think about this tonight. You've got these grandiose visions and ideas. You don't know what's in the heart of your child. But you better determine what you put in the heart of that child. There's a difference between knowing what's in that heart. There's a difference from what you put in that heart. Okay? And whatever, whatever is going on, I'm going to tell you some things tonight. You better listen to me tonight because that's what God, God put in my heart tonight. Fathers must be role models of hard work, direction, getting things done. Man, do not leave things lingering around. You've got to get, you make, God made your man, get things done. Okay? We, we have things to do in church. Get it done. Get it done. Don't linger around. You shouldn't be giving reports, especially at your job. You should not be giving a report at your job or even church. Well, I'm just kind of, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And that was like two years ago. Get to it. Get it done, okay? Listen, men, men ought to be fathers. We're almost hard work, direction, giving direction, knowing your direction, getting things done, discipline. Discipline, righteousness. I appreciate my father-in-law. He wasn't, he wasn't a man that you could say was extremely, extremely, uh, you know, masculine in the sense that he was a champion of, of a lot of physical activities, but he was a man that had righteousness in his heart. I remember giving a testimony in my father-in-law's service, and the one thing that I, I could not get away from was the fact that he was a righteous man. He stood for righteousness. He was a righteous man in his ways. And fathers, we must set an example as a role model in fostering good relationships. That's why Solomon said to his son Rehoboam, thy own friend and thy father's friend forsake not. 
fathers, you better be thinking about who your friends are and what kind of friends you're making because, because if you're telling your son to forsake them not, you better be thinking about what kind of friendships you have. If you've got a bunch of goofballs of friends, that's what your son's going to interpret you as being a goofball. Yeah, that, they say that's pretty strong. I'm just telling you what goes on. I'm a little bit older than some of you here, okay? Now listen to me tonight. Listen to this, okay? Everything strong about your leadership style will manifest itself in the life of your children as either good or bad. Everything about you that's strong about your leadership style will manifest itself in your child, whether good or bad. Don't, don't be presumptuous think that everything strong about your children are going to adopt that. They will not adopt that. They do not adopt that. You think everything strong about you, they will not, they're going to have some push. And you're going to see, there's a Bible principle about that you're going to see in a minute. Everything strong about you, you better reevaluate. Because you know, I said this this morning, and I said it again tonight. God is not attracted to our strength as much as he's attracted to our weaknesses. We better consider our weaknesses and realize whatever strength we have, we better give it to the Lord and let God work through that. Are you, are you, am I registering with you tonight? Say amen, okay? Now, I want you to go with me in Ephesians 6.4. I don't want you to look at your notes. I want you to go with me in Ephesians 6.4 tonight. Turn with me to Ephesians 6.4. I want to give you some thoughts here tonight. We're talking about leadership. Now, when you go to the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, there's a lot of great examples of fatherly leadership. A lot of great examples. <clears throat> but it's interesting, there's one command to fathers that really stands out. And I, I've always pondered this until I was on this study here, and then it got, got to this kind of light bulb went on in my mind as the Lord was speaking to me about this. That, you know, Paul was watching in, in the church at Ephesus how fathers were leading their husbands were leading their families and how fathers were raising their children and prophetically prophetically god spoke to to paul here in ephesians 6 about what we would be dealing with here 2000 years later and what is what was what was relevant when paul wrote ephesians 6:4 is still relevant today okay because the word of god is infallible it's relevant, okay? It's real. It's a timeless truth. And notice, what, if you would with me, I want you to listen very carefully. Paul spends the first three verses talking to children about obeying their parents. And I'm glad he spent three verses talking to children about obedience, one verse talking to fathers about their leadership style. Okay, because verse 4 was talking about leadership, he's talking about role, but he's also talking about the rulership. Role and rulership. Listen, and... He's connecting the thought. Children, you need to obey your parents. And, you know, and I can imagine as Paul was writing that and was being read in the church services and maybe the preacher there at Ephesus preaching on it, I can imagine there were a bunch of dads saying, Amen, Paul, that's right. Tell my child, tell my son, obey his parents. Well, this is right in the sight of the Lord. I can see that. And then he connects the conjunction, and to this, I'm not done yet. If you want your children to obey, you better listen to verse 4. If you want your children to follow you, you better find look, look at verse, verse 4. Because... He looked at the streets at Ephesus and the churches there, and the children there were not necessarily following their fathers and their mothers. So notice what he says there, and ye fathers. Now stop there. He's talking to fathers. He's talking about the leaders of the home. Whether they think they're leaders or not, they're the leaders of the home. Don't say, well, I gave that to my wife. No, God is saying right here in Ephesians 6, 4, you are the father. She is the mother. There is a difference in the role. Say amen if you understand that. Okay? There is a difference in the role. Okay? And he says, and ye fathers, 
Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, I'm thinking about this, and I, I'm, I'm going to be preaching a series of messages on the family before long again, kind of that time of the year. And I'm probably going to use this and bring a salvation message because there are fathers, let's say fathers that come to our church, they understand what this verse is all about. They're not setting a good example for the children by remaining, remaining outside, outside the family of God. They need to get saved. And he says, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now notice this, I want to give you some thoughts here tonight. Paul speaks to fathers in their role, but also how to rule. He's telling us as fathers how to lead. Did you hear what I said tonight? He's telling us how to lead. And what's he saying there? Listen to me tonight. Because Paul says something here, and he says something in 1 Thessalonians 2. When we get there in our Wednesday night study, I'm going to zone in on. He's saying here to fathers, dads, listen to me tonight. He's saying, dads, be very, very careful. You are not a discouragement to your children. Be, don't be a discouragement to you. That's what he's talking about. Provoke not your children to wrath. Now, there's two extremes in where we discourage our children. Extreme number one is we're overindulging them. Overindulgence is you let them do whatever they want to do. Overindulgence is you, you don't give them correction. Overindulgence means you just let them get away. You turn your head, you don't say anything about it. That's like the little kid that goes up and he starts cursing at the age of seven and his mom and dad don't correct him. I've heard some kids do that. Or they talk, they back talk. I've been in homes where the little kid is eight years old and the kid speaks a little more English than his parents and they start back talking to the parents. And man, I'm looking at that and, and listen, my Baptist blood is starting to boil at that. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, I said, Mrs. Fong, would you take the mother to the kitchen? I want to have a word with this little boy for a few minutes. Amen. <clears throat> There's overindulgence. Overindulgence say, Billy. Anybody? There's nobody here named Billy, right? Okay. Billy. Billy, stop it. Well, 10 minutes later, on the 10th time, Billy, stop it. You've overindulged them. They've already won the argument. Moms and dads, especially little kids, one warning is all they get. If you give them more than one warning, they've already figured out how to manipulate. They've already won the battle. That's overindulgence. Now, be careful. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you know, that you're, that you, you know, you're the general of the army and that you're, you know, that, that you're going to bring the Bradley tanks on them. Amen? You know? Because the extreme of this, there's overindulgence, there's overbearing. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. We're overbearing. We're pushing them beyond the limit where they're supposed to be. And you need to know the heart of your child, how far they can be pushed. Now, a lot of kids, the first time you tell them, they say, I can't do it. Well, first of all, they're being lazy, okay? You, you need to push and see where the potential is. First time, that's not overbearing. But maybe if you've tried that for about two, three weeks, and they're still not doing it, and you've done it in love, they can't do it, just realize there's just some limits. You know, my, my dad said, dad, he said, Alan, I want you to study to be a doctor. Well, you know what? By my senior year, after I got through chemistry, I thought, the world does not need Alan Fong as a doctor, amen? <laughs> There'd be a lot of malpractice suits out there if I did that, Okay. There'd be a lot of dead people there, okay? My, my track record wouldn't be very good. I figured after chemistry, yeah, they don't want me in chemistry because I'd blow up the world, amen? That just wasn't going to work there, okay? So I, I just, you know, you have to understand. So my dad, I told my dad one day, Dad, I said, I hate to disappoint you, Dad, but it, this ain't no doctor here. I said, you taught me how to be a butcher. This is different being a butcher and being a doctor, amen? There's two different things there, amen, you know? So I said, I can dissect a chicken, but I said, you don't want me to dissect a human being, amen, you know? Say amen to that. You know what I'm saying there, okay? All right? Hey, listen, okay? 
Overbearing is when you don't, when you just keep pushing and pushing, 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 and you wind up discouraging that child. Now, discouragement is very broad. Notice he says, provoke them not to wrath. Let me talk about some things here. Notice he says here in verse 4, bring them up. I want you to circle those words. Now, notice the leadership involved. Two words, bring them. That's leadership. Parents, dads, were to bring them. We're to lead them. You don't have them lead you. That's why it irks me when we go into homes these little, these, where there's little kids, and the parents turn to a little eight-year-old and say, would you like to go to church? That's not their decision. That's not their decision. And by the way, parents, your kids, your kids, if they get you, now they're really sick, I understand that. But they say, I don't feel like going to church. That's not their decision. To bring them means you lead them, you take them, you bring them to church, or you guide them along the way. Bring them implies leadership. Hey, listen, he says, bring them up. That's where we get the word train from in Proverbs 22, 6. Bring them up. By the way, it didn't say bring them down. It says bring them up. Bring them up to God. Bring them up to Jesus. Bring them up to the standard of the word of God. Bring them up to the right things of God. Bring them up in worship. Bring them up, not bring them down. <clears throat> not we bring them up. Well, bring them up in serving God. Families, I want to encourage you to get the whole family involved in helping us to do a massive distribution and outreach for Easter. We're going to extend our, our outreach on to Sunday afternoons for folks who are here and have teams go out Sunday afternoons. So maybe some families can get involved and help us for Easter. And we're going to be looking for, uh, for some opportunities that might open up where we can do maybe a, a one-day extension ministry and reaching people. But bring them up, okay? Bring them up in exercising proper respect to people authority. Now, I noticed this, and this is not anybody's fault here on this, but we got to do, we, we that means us we have to do a better job of teachers but i was standing outside and some of the kids were coming off our buses and i, I love seeing our kids come off the buses and some of the kids were coming off and i just was coming out from the office i thought, man, i'm gonna stop and just shake hands with the kids and I went out and put my hand out and some of them looked like what do you they didn't want to touch my hand i said hey i don't have a disease you can shake my hand amen you know and they kind of looked like kind of weird like what, what's this all about here hey you know what they need to learn things to simple things that we as christians we shake hands that's an expression of christian friendship and brotherly love amen and they need to learn those type of things there you know you if you don't teach them the, you don't teach them the right things when they're young, when they get to their teen years, then you wonder why there's all this rebellion set. I remember years ago when I was just a very small kid, one of the things I didn't like doing as a kid was going with my parents or my dad actually to see the relatives on his side. My dad spoke a certain dialect and went to see all the relatives on his side. And, um, and I really, I, I couldn't speak the dialect to understand what was going on. And I just felt like I was just the only little kid there. I was like four or five years old. And my dad would take me there. But one thing my dad made me do every time, he always made me look them in the eye. And he'd say, he'd say call them by their proper name in Chinese, whatever it might be. And then he said, put out your hand and shake their hand. Now, I despise doing that. I despise doing that because I just didn't feel like, I just felt like a little kid in an adult's world. And I looked at some of these adults and they had these furrowed brows on me. And, and they said something. And I always thought they were talking about me in Chinese and stuff like that. And I just felt, I just felt really inferior things like that but i'm thankful dad ingrained them even though i didn't like to do it i'm thankful dad ingrained that on me because today as a pastor i love shaking people's hands your children don't learn respect now it's gonna be very hard for them to respect authority later on if they don't respect authority they can see they won't respect authority they cannot see okay bring them up bring them up we provoke them to wrath when we're not constantly involving. Now watch this. I, I've been talking to staff a lot about this. And the church, you need to get on board with this, okay? He didn't call fathers teachers. He called them fathers. Training is instructing and involving. 
Training is instructing and involving. As a Christian, we do wrong by just giving someone a set of instructions and letting them figure it out. We instruct and we involve. Simple example, you get involved in choir. You're not very strong in music, but you get approved to get in choir. You sit with somebody who's musically trained and somewhat competent, and you learn from them. You get involved. You learn from them. You learn how to get better in reading your music. You get better about how to play your, your instrument. You practice them. You, you're instructed, and you involve. We have Chinese sessions, okay? Here's another one. In soul winning, we just don't give you instruction. We involve. You want to pair you up with somebody that's experienced. In fact, for the first month, we just want you to go along and smile and look, look, look pretty, and uh, don't say a word because we don't want you blowing it. I mean, we're there, you know, I want you to just get involved. And then we're going to say, okay, now's your turn. You go be on knocking the door and ringing the, and ringing the doorbell. What we want you to do is we want you to give the greeting. And then we will say, well, we'll give the greeting and open it up. Then we want you to give the plan of salvation. And we'll train you how to do the transition. Well, we involve people. We involve people doing things. Our greeter ministry does the same thing. Our greeters does this. We'll add some new people to our greeters. And we'll say, okay, watch the, 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 uh, the, the, the existing greeters, how they do it. And you kind of learn of a style and you get involved. I took one of our men out yesterday. My wife wasn't feeling good yesterday. So I got over here and went up to someone of our men. Hey, I'd like you to go sewing with me. And afterwards, he said, Pastor, he said, I really enjoyed going with you because he said, you know, it I just gets me out of my, my usual. I'm stuck on how I do things. And he said, I'm just thankful that I just saw how different things, how you just kind of look at these situations. You didn't really pre-plan things, but it helped me be observant about how to observe what's going on and, and take advantage of it. We instruct and we involve, okay? Your children are the same way. You don't just give them instruction, but you involve them. You know, I, I was telling, telling our nursery workers the other day, I said, hey, listen, don't be pick up the toys for the kids. Get them involved. Show them. Get them involved give it to them and say where are you supposed to put it amen give it to them show them where are you supposed to put it there okay to show them what they're supposed to do they're instructed and involved that's what father is supposed to do let's bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the lord now notice the two words nurture now listen to what the word nurture means it's talking about affecting the whole being of the child now nurturing means can have the idea of feeding but we also get the word discipline or correction from that word nurture now listen it involves the whole being of the child now, that, that's awesome when you think about it. That means God is concerned about the, about the mental and the spiritual and the physical and the emotional aspect of the child. I mean, thank God God is concerned about every aspect of the child. But God wants the child to grow up healthy. God wants the child to grow up being, being, having common sense. God wants the child to grow up knowing how to do things, how to be productive, how to have common sense about things. It involves the whole being of the child. Notice, it, notice this. The word nurture means instruction which increases virtue. It prompts a kid, I want to do right. It prompts a child when they do wrong. It's okay they have tears in their eyes. Listen, that means the child's conscience is very tender. If the child has an angry look in their eyes and they're defiant about something, there's something wrong about our instruction process. We're not doing the right thing. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. We're talking about leadership there. Now, of all people, just say this tonight, of all people, Jacob didn't do that good of a job with his sons either. His home was chaotic. His marriages, that was problem number one. He had marriages, okay? His marriages were chaotic. There was strife and conniving and things like that going on. And then notice the word admonition. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He says, you know, there are times you have to, you have to correct them. 
And there are times you have to rebuke them, but we have to be very careful. And, you know, as young parents, we just, you know, we're, we're very, we have a lot more energy when we're younger than when we're older. And as younger parents, we have a tendency to just, we get, we get, we get very animated with our children. How many of you know what I mean by that? We get a little animated when they're not where they're supposed to be. We get a little more excited about it. In fact, we get more excited about their bad behavior than they are, okay? Because they don't really realize it's bad behavior. And so we must understand in our leadership how we're to approach that. Listen to the words of John Quincy Adams. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you're a good leader. You're a good leader. I'm just saying tonight, I want you to see some things tonight. We see positional significance. Dan shall be a judge in Israel. He'll be a scepter in the land of Israel. He'll be one, as one of the tribes of Israel. We see him positioning, helping Dan to understand it would be given to his descendants. There will be leadership in the tribe of Dan. A scepter will be found there. Now notice number two. Notice number two. We've got to move very quickly, okay? So I went overboard last week. Number one, positional significance. Number two, I want you to see the peril of sin. Now we get to verse, 16, to verse 17. He says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way. That means not a serpent in your pathway. A serpent that's hidden from sight. And he goes even further by describing, he says, an adder in the path. That biteth the horse heels so that the rider, his rider shall fall backwards. What a description about Dan. He's describing him as an adder blending in with the sand and coming up behind a rider on a horse. And at the opportune time, as the horse is standing still, biting the horse on the heels where it's very vulnerable, the horse feels the pain, the sharpness of the pain from the fang setting in, and now the venom shooting up the bloodstream. The horse knows something bad happened because the, the pain and the heat is shooting up the bloodstream from the backside of the, of, the, of the ankle or the calf where it was bit. And the horse, as you know how horses are when they're excited, they, they, they lift up their front legs and they're leaning up on their back. If you're a rider not holding on very carefully, it describes it here, you fall backwards. He's describing a dam as being a right as an adder, a venomous species of snake that, that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backwards. Now, what we're going to see here is the example of failed leadership. And we're going to see it in two instances. Number one, I want you to notice the self-indulgence of Samson. Now, Samson was, the, was, was of the tribe of Dan. We read about him in Judges 13 to 16. I'm going to give you a quick narrative because we need to move on. Judges 13 to 16 tell us the life story of Samson from birth to death. That's important, from birth to death. His mother was barren. God opened her womb. Gave her the son. In fact, God sent an angel, the Lord, who communicated to her in understandable language that she would bring forth the son. Manoah, Manoah comes to the angel. She tells Manoah. Manoah goes and waits for the angel. Then he sees the angel. And Manoah asks a good question that should be the prayer of every parent. How should we order the child? Lord, tell me how I'm supposed to teen train the child. Tell me how I'm supposed to do it. They want to do the right thing. And God instructed Manoah and his wife, Mrs. Manoah. He said, well, he, basically they, they, the, the angel told them that the, your child is going, to be a, from, from the, is going to be a Nazarite. And, of course, if you know Numbers chapter 6, we have the description of the Nazarite. The Nazarites were men of God that differentiated themselves from the rest of society. How they dressed, how they ate, everything they did, they gave semblance of the fact that they were men separated unto God. And one of the unique things about Nazarites, they weren't supposed to touch anything 
from the vine. They weren't supposed to drink from the vine. They weren't supposed to eat anything from the vine. In addition to that, they had to be extra, extra careful. They were not to be near any dead bodies because that would cause defilement to them. And so from the moment of his birth, Samson is dedicated to the service of the Lord. His parents did all they could to raise him up. He was destined to become what was said here, a judge in Israel. That's what's described here in verse 16. But as Samson went along, the very next thing we read about Samson, we get to chapter 14, and the one area of Samson's life that he couldn't control was the area of his appetite. He was a man given to loss and covetousness, and his greatest weakness as a leader was a weakness for women, and he just was always weak in there, and we find him falling and falling and falling and compromising, compromising, compromising. And so we read Samson, the very first thing we see in the exercise of the role of the Nazarite, we see him disregarding the counsel of his parents. We see him disregarding the upbringing as a Nazarite. We see him as a man who lacked control over his fleshly desires. And finally, he gets to this place where, where he's just, he causes other people to sin. He, uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he indulges himself with a woman that he was not supposed to get involved with. Those of the Philistines. And then later on, there was a lion that met him in the way, and God was using that to try to get him recalibrated. But because he had this, this unique power that God gave to him, he, he rendered the lion apart. He left it there where the lion, lion started to rot. As the lion started to rot and decay, it, some bees came by and built a nest inside there. and was honey inside there. And he went in and touched that lion. He, he did all the things he was supposed to do right during those very opening days of his ministry, his public ministry, and he starts eating of the honey. And then of all things, he gives that same honey to his parents. He leads them down the wrong pathway there. They, didn't idea, they had no idea that this honey came out of a dead carcass. I mean, he's just going down that pathway. We fast forward. Now we go to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, we see the downfall of Samson. Samson is enticed by the beauty and the attractiveness of a woman by the name of Delilah. Delilah is a, is a paid hire for the Philistines. They said, we will give you all these shekels of money if you will, if you will help us find out what is the source of his strength. Well, Samson knew the source of his strength. The source of his strength was from God. It wasn't anything he did. But Samson wanted to fool around, and Samson wanted to play. And Samson got too close to sin. He got close enough that he got burned by the fire there. And so Samson, he, he misleads her three different times, and she starts messing with his head. Says, "How could you lie to me? And how could you mock me?" He's messing with sin. Listen, let me remind you today: never talk with the devil. Never talk with sin. Never have a conversation. That's where you turn your back and you flee youthful lust and resist the devil. You need to get away from that. Well, Samson kept messing around. So finally, the Bible describes this. Look at Judges chapter 16. And I want you to go down here. I want you to go down here now, if you would, to verse, to verse 16. Judges 16, 16. And it says, It came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. She wore away at him, wore away. You know what she knew? She learned about the art of negotiation. You just keep being a pest in his side. You just keep being in his face and eventually you'll give in. That's how negotiators win. They just keep in your face. They keep on doing at it. By the way, that's the secret to soul winning. You want to see someone safe? Keep showing up on their doorstep. Don't be a pest. Show compassion. Let them realize that you're genuinely concerned about them. Just keep showing up and showing up and showing up and showing up. But the Bible says here about Delilah, she kept pressing him daily with her words and urged him so the soul was vexed unto death. She wore him out. She just wore him away. She was that dripping faucet the Bible speaks about in Proverbs. You know what I'm talking about there? Then the Bible says in verse 17 that he was at a place, and I want you to understand before I read verse 17, he was at a place, he was not spiritual when we get to verse 17. In fact, through that whole chapter, he's not spiritual at all. He's got this unusual power, and if you read chapter 16, he describes himself this way. He says, well, if you do this, I will be like other men. 
Now that's very interesting because Samson knew that he was not like other men. Other men were weak and other men were powerless. Other men were not gifted with the abilities he had. Other men didn't have the power of God. Can I tell you something? Men and women tonight, to get the power of God, you're not like other people. To have God's power in prayer, to have God's power in service, to have God's power with the fruit of the Spirit, you are not like other people. But the moment you become like other people, you produce what other people produce, and that's zero. And so we go over here, and she's pressing him to death. So finally he gives in. He's overindulged in the situation. Then the Bible says in verse 17, he told her all his heart. Be careful who you tell all your heart to. Listen, the only place you tell all your heart to is two places. Number one, children tell all your heart to your parents. And then husbands and wives tell your hearts to each other. You're not to tell your heart to anybody else outside of that. Because now you're getting into danger zones. You're jumping off the coals into the fire. He told her all his heart. And he said to her, there has not come a razor upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. What he should have did right back in day one, he says, I just want you to know, Delilah, I'm a Nazarite, and I have no, I have no intention of messing with you. Now he's telling her at the backside, she could care less than he's a Nazarite because she's a pagan. Pagans don't care that you're a Christian. They want to see your Christianity. They don't want to hear about your Christianity. They want to see your Christianity. And he says, For I've been a Nazarene to God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go for me, and I shall become weak and be like other men. Now, he's telling her the secret to strength. Shave my head. You know, the secret to your strength and my strength is, the, is, is growing in the Lord, spending time in His presence, Growing in Jesus Christ, giving evidence we've been in the presence of God. The moment you shave your life, you shave time off your life. You shave time from spending time with God. You shave time from getting the holiness of God in your life. You shave time from having the power of the Holy Spirit. When you start shaving and cutting corners and shaving things out, watch like this. We become like Samson. We're just like other men. By the way, what have you shaved off your calendar tonight? What have you shaved off your time tonight? What have you shaved off your holiness tonight? What have you shaved off of serving God tonight? He said, if I be shaven from my head. And by the way, the head and the hair was the glory of man. Just as much the woman. If I be shaven, I should become like other men. And Delilah saw that he told her all his heart. And she sent call for the lords of the Philistines. saying, come up this one for you. Show me all his heart. And of all things, would you notice verse 19? She made him sleep upon her knees. Over and over again in the New Testament, the Bible reminds us, awake from your sleep. Wake thou the sleepless and rise from the dead. And she's, he's, he's sleeping in the wrong place. He's got, his, he's got his head on the lap of Delilah. And there he's so fast asleep. He's so confident. He's just so fast asleep. She calls a man over who shaves the seven locks off his head, off his head. Now, I don't know about you, but I, man, if somebody touched me in my sleep, I'm going to wake up. I'm a light sleeper. You touch me in my sleep. Look out, man. Don't, I'm not going to promise you anything. I tell my wife, okay, now be careful at night. You touch me the wrong way. I said, I'm, I, I'm just imagining somebody came to the house, wrong person. Don't touch me the wrong way. I don't want to hit you by accident, you know? Like if you start shoving me like that, I said, what's going on here, you know? You imagine this man, Mr. Strongman. He's asleep on her lap. His head gets shaved. He didn't even know what's happening. Listen, he was more comfortable being in her lap than he was being on his face before God. 
A lot of us are like that too. More comfortable being in the lap of sin than we are on our face before God. Then he told her, then in verse 19, and she made her sleep upon her knees and she called for man and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head and she began to flick. Isn't that interesting? She began to pinch him. She began to punch him. And the Bible says his strength went from him. Samson allowed himself to become vulnerable in the lap of a wicked woman. His strength was not in his hair. His hair was a symbol that he was separated to God. He disregarded what God had entrusted to him, allowed Delilah to take advantage of him. And we read this later on. He became like other men that they took him and look what they did to him. In verse 20 says, she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. He woke out of his sleep and he said, I will go out as, at other times before and shake myself. Well, you know what? It was too late to shake himself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. And the Philistines took him. And that's the first time. And listen, you look at Samson's life. Here's two things he did real quickly in his self-indulgence. He endangered himself. And listen, he endangered other people around him. You read, you read through that in Judges 15. He endangered the people around him. The Philistines took him. They put out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with fetters of brass. And he'd grind in the prison house. And we thank God the story, story ends incredibly at the end of that chapter. But talk about a dark moment in the life of a judge. Go back to what Jacob said. Dan shall be a judge in the tribes of Israel. He said, he shall be a, la a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heel so this rider shall fall backwards. Number one, we see, we see in the perils of sin, we see the, the self, we sell the self-will of Samson, but you notice something else. Notice letter B, which you notice the stumbling block of a city. Now we go over, and I'm not going to turn to it because of time, but you go over to 1 Kings 12. The kingdom's been split. By the way, when there's division, there's always weakness. Do you hear what I said? When there's division, there's always weakness. The kingdom was divided. Everything handed over to Rehoboam, he blew it. He blew it. He listened to his contemporary worship friends instead of listening to the older men. And because of that, he split the kingdom. Jeroboam came back from Egypt. Jeroboam seized the moment. He forgot the prophecies that was given to him how to lead right. And Jeroboam started thinking. He, started, he adopted a worldly mindset in terms of leadership. That's what he did. You go study it. He adopted a worldly mindset. He says, you know what? Um, you know, there's a center of worship. They go down to Jerusalem to worship at certain feast days. And, you know, they had three of them. They had all the men had to go back to three, three times a year. And he started thinking, I've got to come up with something that's a little bit different. And so he devised a religion that was convenient. He devised a religion that was appealing to the flesh. By the way, that's all the contemporary worship movement's about. It's about convenience and what appeals to the flesh. Amen? That's what it's all about, all right? I mean, you just go see and watch it. Uh, so they, they, that, uh, uh, never mind. So anyway, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to tell you tonight. But anyway, so, so, so Jeroboam, Jeroboam establishes these two. Uh, he says, you know, I'm establish two centers of worship. I want to make it convenient for the people. He put one down in Bethel. And he put one up in, up in Dan. So he got one there right in the middle there where people can go to and way in the northernmost part of the area where people can go to. And he, and he, and he changed the date. 
You look at your Bible. He changed the date. He said, you don't have to go on these dates. You go on, on this other date. And he did something that appealed to them. He brought back their carnal senses there, okay? And their carnal senses brought them back to the days they were in Egypt when the captivity, it came back to them. He said, I'm established two golden calves of worship. And he erected a golden calf in Bethel and a golden calf up there in Dan. Now, it's amazing in all that. Nobody fought him. Of the ten tribes of Israel, nobody fought him. Nobody resisted. In fact, they were kind of just like Aaron. Aaron went along with the people when they said, make us a golden calf. And they went ahead and did that. And we know the rest of the story. They never got rid of those golden calves. Those calves of Jeroboam became a problem. Listen, those calves were a stumbling block to the nation of Israel. And what I want you to see tonight, notice if you go back to Jeremiah, uh, Genesis 49. Verse 17 was talking about the stumbling block of this nation. They will be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall. Listen, with a stumbling block, a stumbling block influences the weak conscience of others going down a pathway of sin and heartache. So in other words, here's this rider on a horse. He has no clue what's in the sand. His horse is stationary for just a moment. And this adder comes about the sand. It seizes the opportunity. It bites him in the back where his ankle is or by his calf and inflicts him with pain. And the horse goes backwards on his, on his, on his, on his hind legs. The, the front legs are going up. And the rider is caught on the wares and he falls backward off of there. That's a stumbling block. A stumbling block causes other people to fall backwards. A stumbling block is a leader who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. A stumbling block is a leader who doesn't catch your words and complaining and grumbling and murmurs come out of the words and all of a sudden they're building an assembly of people. A stumbling block is an absence standing in the gate and saying, I wish I were king. Well, people heard him because he said that out loud and he built an assembly and while he was there, he had a group of people who became, uh, who became very upset with David and whatever they heard about David was wrong, but they heard it anyway and they listened to that. I'm just saying tonight as we look a stumbling block. A stumbling block causes other people to fall backwards and they get injured along the way. A stumbling block is never a good thing. If we're not in the right place, if we're not doing the right thing, if we're saying the wrong words, if we're not very careful of our emotion, our spirit, a stumbling block can be very, very detrimental to others. Leaders who can be swayed by the opinions and complaints of followers are dangerous leaders who eventually become rebellious. A leader who lives a double life is eventually exposed and affects the faith of those who follow. Yesterday I was out with one of our brothers. We were out soul winning him, and we came across a man who said, well, I, I want you to know, thank you for coming. I want you to know I came out of the witnesses. He's talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, really? And he started telling me why he came out with Jehovah's Witnesses, and there were, some, there were some immoral scandals that were going on behind the scenes. He said, I saw it all happen, and they were covering it up. He said, I came out of that. And I said, you know, sir, I'm glad you came out of it, but you didn't come all the way. You need to get to Jesus. You can be disappointed in what you saw because it was a stumbling block to him. He said, I don't want nothing to do with it. It was a stumbling block to him, a stumbling block to his man. But I said, you know what? I, I said, you know, you know, organizations fail, but Jesus never fails. Christ never fails. Organization never fails, but Jesus never fails. I said, you've got to get your eyes off that and realize at your age in life, you need to get off that stumbling block and get your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, we find here the stumbling block of a city. That golden calf worship was the bane of Israel. If you go to the book of Isaiah, the prophecies given to King Ahaz, he says, he's told one day, in 75 years, on the day of that prophecy, in 75 years, Israel no longer exists as a nation, mainly because of their golden calf worship. So number one, we see positional significance. Number two, we see the peril of sin. But we need to close on a positive note. Would you notice verse 18? We're almost done. In verse 18, and again, you have to bear in mind, Jacob is talking as a father 
And he's giving some prophetic announcements about his sons. He talks about Dan being a judge, and, and we see that in Samson. He talks about Dan being a serpent by the way, and he sees this city that was a stumbling block to many, many thousands of people there. And then he says this, he's saying this, which you notice verse 18. I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. In verse 16 and 17, we see Dan, we see Jacob there somewhat remorseful that he sees a son that will be in a leadership position, but in that leadership position, those descendants will fail God and fail the people. They will be failed leadership. He sees Samson in his failed leadership. He sees the city of Dan in his failed leadership. He sees the assembly block along the way. He sees how others follow through with that. And it's just a very, very awful situation. And so his mind, now, now I want you to notice here, his mind is on something here. He's been remember he's giving a prophecy by the spirit of God and he says I've waited for thy salvation O Lord and I think he's thinking about his forefathers many years back he's thinking about his forefathers going back to the garden of Eden he's thinking about it the first time a serpent is mentioned amen he's thinking about a serpent there whose name was Satan whose name is called the old serpent he's thinking about there and back there in Genesis chapter 3 how the serpent who was who was basically uh, was Satan personified through the serpent Satan who filled that serpent came to Eve and he came to Adam, and he tempted them, and he caused them to sin. And he's talking about that old serpent there, that old serpent that bit the first Adam, and the curse of sin came on all men. He's thinking about how the first Adam fell, and the venomous poison that, that, fed, that was inflicted through that sin was passed on all the descendants. We know in Romans 5:12, by one man, sin entered in the world, and death by sin. So then death has passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. That's the venomous poison that Satan inflicted through that, that, that old serpent there, and personified the old serpent there in Genesis chapter 3. He thought back there, he's thinking, you know what? I've got a son. He's, he's going to have to send us one day, and there's going to be a serpent by the way. There's going to be an adder in the sand. There's going to be adder, an adder that's hidden on the sideway there that's going to bite the, the horse heels so that the rider shall fall backwards. But he said, but you know what? I'm looking backwards, and I remember an old serpent that came along the way that bit my forefather, Adam, and passed the sin nature upon me, and will pass the sin nature upon dad, and has passed the sin nature upon us. And he thought about that serpent, but then he thought about Genesis 3.15, if you'll turn to that, amen? Go to Genesis 3.15. He thought about that old serpent, by the way, and again, he's giving a prophecy there, and he goes to Genesis 3.15, and he's giving a prophecy there. God gives a prophecy about that old serpent there in Genesis 3.15. He says here, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's saying here, look, look at here, I have waited for thy salvation. He was remembering there in Genesis 3.15 that God was talking to the old serpent. God rebuked that serpent in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, he's talking about there's enmity between the serpent and the woman. He said, between thy seed and her seed. And the seed he's talking about there, as you circle, the seed he's talking about the messianic prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Christ. He's not just talking about a son that would be born. He's talking about a son that would be born, the son that would be born, a descendant that would come from, the, from, the, from those loins, a descendant that would be sinless, a descendant that would be born of a virgin birth, a descendant that would be known as Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the family. There would be imagery between your seed and her seed. And he says, it shall bruise thy head. And he says, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's thinking about that old serpent there that inflicted the poison upon his forefather Adam that passed on to 
him. But now he's thinking about it. He says here in verse 18 in chapter 49, I've waited for thy salvation, Lord. He said, yeah, it's a bad thing. I've got a son that's going to fall on the pathway of sin. It's a bad thing. He's going to be a stumbling block. It's a bad thing that he's going to be a leader that fails. But thank God there'll be a day when we're going to look at that old serpent. We're going to see that adder by the way. And he said, there's going to come a day. Listen, the son of God will be born. And when the son of God will be born, there's going to come a day. He's going to bruise the serpent, the head, the serpent of the head. He's going to take that old serpent. He's going to bruise it. Yes, it's going to bite the heel. That means that Satan would instigate a mob rule and a mob mindset on the day that Christ would be crucified. When all of Jerusalem turned his back on the Son of God, just days before, they were exalting Jesus Christ and saying, here he is, Hosanna to the one that's highest. Those same people turned on Jesus. That's why I tell you every time, if somebody praises you, tells you something good about you, don't believe a word they say, amen. Listen, he's thinking about that old serpent, by the way, that's going to bite his Savior on the heel. It's going to bite him on the heel, but it will not be the end of the Savior. Yes, you'll bite him on the heel, but on that same heel that you're going to bite him, listen, the Savior is going to come, and Jesus will die on the cross. And listen, he shed his precious blood for the sins of all the world. And while that old slithering, stifle, that terrible uh, serpent is slithing along the way, the day will come. They will take Jesus off the cross, and they'll bury him in the tomb. And all the demons of hell will think Jesus is dead, and Jesus is buried and Jesus no more but then the third day came praise God the third day came when the third day came the angel descended from heaven and the stone was rolled away the women said who shall roll away the stone don't worry about that God's got that all covered amen God rolled the stone away there was no stone that could get in the way of our Savior Jesus Christ and up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes I want to tell you that old serpent was there and he came out of the sand and he's looking and said what's going on who moved that stone who moved that stone away and who broke that Roman seal. Wait a minute. Who's coming out of that tomb? It's Jesus. And Jesus, when he came out, he saw the old serpent. He said, I'm going to bow down your head. I'm going to bruise your head, Satan. I'm going to bruise your head, Satan. I'm going to bruise your head, Satan. That's what, that's what he's saying there. I've waited for thy salvation. I have seen the salvation, Lord. Listen, he said, I've waited. He said, salvation's coming. Hey, I got good news for you. Salvation came. Amen. Salvation's came already. Listen. In verse 18, Jacob could see the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman, the Holy One of Israel, the promised Messiah, the, the Redeemer of those enslaved to sin, the second Adam. I said the second Adam. The first Adam failed. second Adam succeeded. The first Adam was bitten. The second Adam bit him back. The first Adam, the first Adam died. The second Adam rose again from the tomb. And I remind you tonight, he saw the second Adam, the Savior of the world, would rise one day and bruise the head of the serpent. Listen, the first Adam failed in his leadership, and he did. But the second Adam was successful in his leadership. The first Adam failed to sin. But the second Adam died for our sin. I remind you tonight, the first Adam was a victim, was a victim to the serpent. But the second Adam was victorious over the serpent. Oh, that's why I think as John, John wrote 1 John. We get over to 1 John. He's a 90-year-old man. He realizes that the church there at Ephesus is dealing with sin and dealing with problems. And he made makes this remarkable statement in 1 John 3, 8. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Brother and sister Christ, I want to tell you something. He was waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Salvation of the Lord has come, and the head of the serpent is bruised. The head of the serpent is broken. The head of the serpent is crushed. Who could do it? Only Jesus Christ could bruise the head of the serpent there tonight. 
power of salvation is not found in the first Adam who brought the curse of sin upon the human race. The power of salvation is found in the second Adam who redeemed us from all of our sins. Hey, thank God I'm free tonight. Thank God I'm free tonight because of what he did on, on for, against that serpent. He said, I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth. I remind you tonight, we see a sap, another story of a serpent. We re, re realize over there in Numbers chapter 21, the nation of Israel is murmuring and complaining against God. God had it with all that murmuring. I'm going to tell you tonight, if you're a murmuring Christian, the Bible says do all things without murmuring and complaining. If you're a murmuring Christian, there's going to become a day, God's had it with that murmuring. God's had it with all that grumbling around, that complaining, that murmuring that's going around. He remembers that that, was murmur, that murmuring was caused a division in Israel. And listen, God got upset about that. And God set these fiery serpents. They were adders that had venomous poison. They were familiar in the sands of Egypt there. And he sent those in that, in that wilderness area. And he sent these venomous serpents out there and started biting people by the way. And everyone bitten by those serpents, the fiery venom that got in their veins. And within minutes, these people were dying. Hey, you read Numbers 21, they're dying all over the place. There's carnage everywhere. There's flesh everywhere. There's dead bodies everywhere. And Moses and Aaron are watching with horror as people are dying by the droves. They're being bit by the serpent. They're dying. They're looking. They're looking at the situation. What do we do? And God goes to Moses. If you want to help salvage this situation, you need to go make yourself a brass serpent. You take that brass serpent and you put it on a pole. And then you tell Aaron to go over there yonder. And you stand up on a certain place and you hold that pole up with a serpent. And everybody that looks on that serpent, they'll live. And listen, they made that brass serpent as fast as they could. They fixed it on top of that pole they put it on that pole and Aaron got up there like this I hope this doesn't break on me he got up there like this and he was holding it like this to there and listen people that were bit they started to look up they looked up and said whoa well, what is that what's that and listen they got strength back in their heels they got strength back in their legs they started going back on they started going walking like that for God they got excited about things they said man I was ragging my leg I was down there but now thank God I can walk and I can do something for the Lord they got all excited they got the life they were looking and they were living let me tell you tonight yeah the serpent might bite you but thank God tonight you can look at Jesus Christ, and you can look and live tonight. Amen. I've waited for thy salvation, O oh Lord. Serpents are bad things. Paul stuck his hand in the fire. He was putting some firewood in there, and a venomous viper came out and clasped on his hand. But I want to tell you, there on that ship, while it was bobbing up and down, and for those 14 nights when they saw no stars nor moons and all hope was gone, he was praying to God. And I'm going to tell you, in the midst of that trial, midst of that storm, Paul was more prayed up. Paul was more read up. He was more filled with God at that moment, perhaps any other time in his ministry. When they got on those shoreline, he was drenching wet. There was a rainstorm going there on the island of Malta. He was drenching wet with water. The rain was coming down. And he saw the servants there, that the people of Malta, they're just extending hospitality. And they made a big bonfire to help these 200 plus men that had been shipwrecked there. And all the men are standing around there shivering, wondering what to do. Centurions are shivering what to do. And Paul did what a servant's supposed to do. Paul looked around and says, well, somebody's got to help these men. He started grabbing some wood and started putting wood on it. He got involved. Listen, he got involved and he got to start helping. He started putting wood on the fire. Let me tell you tonight, don't stand around wondering what's going on. Get involved for Jesus Christ tonight. He got involved and he put himself in there and he started putting wood there. And let me tell you something, you start serving God and you start doing something out of the ordinary because out of the 200 plus people that were there, he was the only one serving, the only one willing to put his hand in the fire, the only one willing to take some risks about what he was doing, the only one willing to get, to get wet and drenched while everything's going on. While Paul was doing that, listen, that old venomous viper came out and said, okay, Paul, I'm going to stop you from that. And he latched on his hand and the people looked at it. They thought, oh, this man must be a criminal. He must have did something wrong. That's why the serpent got him. But Paul looked at it. 
and he just shook the devil. He shook that old ver- uh, serpent off back into the fire. They looked at him. He just went on and kept on serving. Let me tell you tonight, you serve Jesus Christ. You get involved with so winning. You do something for God. The serpent's going to come out of that fire and latch onto you at the wrong time. You just shake him off and keep on serving Jesus Christ. Why? Because you take that old serpent here. He said he bit, he bit the heel of the, ser- of the seed of the woman. But listen, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ said, I took care of you, serpent. You're dead. You know what we saying there as we close tonight? Leadership may fail. Our Lord never fails. He didn't fail on the cross. He succeeded on the cross. He didn't fail coming out of that tomb. He succeeded coming out of that tomb. And so tonight... Where's your leadership at? Have you been bit? Have you been victim of a stumbling block? You're blaming a spiritual ancestor? You're blaming some Sunday school teacher? Some pastor who failed along the way? About a failed, a failed service? Or are you someone that's going to say like Jacob, you know what? He's going to be serpent by the way, and adder in the pathway, and he's going to bite the heels of the, of the rider so the rider falls backward. Or you're going to be someone like Jacob who says, you know what? I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. You know what Jacob's saying there? It's bad, but it's going to get better. And it might be bad, but it can only get better. Get your eyes on the Lord. So I've been bit. Yeah, we've all been bit. But you keep worrying about the bite, said about the Bible, you're not going to make it. You worry more about the serpent than you are about the Savior, you're not going to make it. I urge you tonight, get busy for God. Get busy for God. Samson had distractions. Die to self. Die to your appetites. Die to your lusts. Samson said, I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. He said, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Praise God, it's already been done. It's been done. It should bruise the heel of, of the seed. But the seed should bruise the head of the serpent. Our God reigns. Jesus is victorious. He's on the throne. He controls the storms. He rolls away the stones. He's in charge of the shipwrecks. You name it, he's in charge. You say, well, it didn't turn out the way I wanted to. I understand. In our heart of hearts, there's some things we want to turn out the way. But listen, all things work together for good. All things work together for good to them that love God. You meant it for evil. He meant it for good. Father, tonight we ask you encourage our hearts about Jacob's life.